Welcome to the dysfunctional sports team ownership edition of Conduct Detrimental. Uh, this is your co-host, Daniel Wallach. Joining me this week uh, will be a breaking news reporter, Jason Morin. Jason, we're going to cover two stories this week, two big ones involving dysfunctional pro sports franchise. The first story will involve a, a stunning, weird development in connection with the sale of the Washington Commanders. And then we're going to bring on for our second story, Greg Wyshynski, ESPN senior reporter, to talk about the uh, fallout of the Arizona Coyotes arena vote uh, shockingly failing uh, at the polls, soundly rejected by uh, voters in the city of Tempe. But let's start with a new lawsuit filed by Brian Davis's company. Uh, and I'll let you fill in the details. But Jason, you were the one that broke the story Friday on Twitter, and it went somewhat viral with Pro Football Talk and front office sports picking it up. Uh, can can you you know tell us what you discovered and 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 a little bit more about the details of this new lawsuit against Bank of America? Yeah, thank you so much. And like you said, the the saga continues. The story has just been unbelievable. The twists and turns that uh, you know between the Snyders and their malfeasance in running the franchise and. Uh, the, the sale that has now taken place and is in the process of, of completing this figure, Brian Davis, has really uh, taken a forefront for what you know reasons that people think are not worthy of time. But meanwhile, we still have to keep talking about him because he is relevant. And yesterday, that is Friday, May 19th, the company that he owns is Urban Echo Energy, filed a lawsuit in the District Court of Maryland against Bank of America, largely alleging that uh, Davis, through his company, had made a bona fide offer to purchase the Washington Commanders from Dan Snyder, and that was in the amount of $7.1 billion, is what he's claiming, and that Bank of America didn't properly notify Snyder of the offer. So this is a claim for conversion and replevin. And Davis and his company are seeking injunctive relief, forcing Bank of America to, number one, replenish his account in the amount of $5.1 billion in order for uh, his offer of $7.1 billion for the commanders to be properly evaluated in his word. So he's claiming that had Bank of America properly brought this offer to the table to the Snyders, that Dan Snyder would have accepted it. That is his word through his company. So, you know, many people from the beginning didn't take Brian Davis's offer seriously. They said that this seems fishy. You know, the funding didn't seem right. He had lawsuits filed against him uh, in various other capacities relating to financial and, and liquidation issues. And people said, where is this $7.1 billion coming from? And does he actually have it? And, you know, a lot of people said, you know, this could just be a money grab. And now here we are in a lawsuit and they're speculating. Maybe that's what this was all along. What do you think? Or maybe it's money laundering. I, I mean, sort of the, the the real surprising development in the story as we dig a little bit deeper, the questions have always been raised about the source of Brian Davis's money. I mean, to have five billion or ha to have seven point one billion dollars sitting around. I mean, at, at the core of this lawsuit is a request for the return of a bank draft. Bank draft in the amount of five point one billion dollars, which would make Brian Davis one of the wealthiest people in the country if this was you know legitimate but uh there were two bank drafts and they are both attached as exhibits 
to a, a sworn statement given by Brian Davis in this lawsuit. One of the exhibits to the complaint is a sworn statement by, by Mr. Davis, and he attaches copies of the bank draft. There's there's a check in the amount of, or bank draft in the amount of $5 billion. And then there's uh, a smaller bank draft in the amount of $100 million. Jointly, they add up to $5.1 billion. And Davis is alleging that that money was given by Urban Echo, his corporation, to Bank of America to substantiate the source of the funding. But a closer look at that bank draft reveals something very strange and very unusual in that the money doesn't come from Mr. Davis's own accounts. It does not come from any corporate assets of Urban Echo. It comes from a third party and not just any third party. It comes from some dead guy's estate. This is this is really stunning. The uh, the bank drafts are issued from a Citibank account belonging to the estate of Severino, Garcia, Santa, Romana. And it was signed by the administratrix or the administrator of this deceased person's estate. Well, if you go down the rabbit hole on Google and, and, and try to try to research who Severino Garcia Santa Romana is and his relationship with Citibank, it takes you down some dark alleys of the Internet, leading you to looted gold, CIA operatives and former Philippines president. Ferdinand Marcos, which obviously is going to raise red flags if you're Bank of America that, wait a second, this is this is is this a legit source of funding? Uh, and, and, and Davis wants that money replevened or returned to Urban Echo. But if you're Bank of America and you see a bank draft issued from this from some deceased person's estate, that will undoubtedly raise a duty of inquiry and investigation. So that's where things stand. And, and, you know, a lawsuit filed yesterday has opened up a Pandora's box of questions relating to, legit, to the legitimacy of the bid and the source of Brian Davis's funding for it. Yeah, we, we just have to hope this one makes it to discovery because I need to see, uh, you know, some of the documents and then proof that Davis can provide of where this money's coming from. There's been reports that the money has uh, some kind of tracing to Saudi Arabia. I mean, this story is unbelievable. And when Davis was asked that question on 106.7 The Fan, he said, my money comes from white people who are Jewish, Italian, and Sicilian. That's a real quote. So, well, you know. You know, the issues, if I'm Bank of America, you're always going to look at issues from an anti-money laundering perspective, bank fraud perspective. I mean, if this is coming from Urban Echoes, your corporate bank account at Citibank, then there's no question as to its you know, it, it, it's it's legitimacy, right? It's coming from the corporation that is primarily or solely owned by Brian Davis, but the uh, it but but this Italian uh, or the CIA deceased CIA operative, if he is a CIA operative, right? Uh, it, it raises the specter of offshore funds, the the uh, source of which is of unknown origin. And, you know, a little bit of internet research leads you some, down some dark alleys that suggest uh, looted gold, the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. And, you know, yeah, oh. I, I want some discovery on this case. This will, oh, yeah. this will clearly either be the, you know, uh, uncovering the fraud of the century, or maybe, you know, the, the missing gold has been discovered and the rightful heirs to this looted gold will come into a windfall of $5.1 billion. And 
it raises more questions about Brian Davis than we had prior to today. But I don't think this is the lawsuit that's going to lead to the National Football League overhauling its uh, criteria for selling NFL franchises. Number one, the case where the claims aren't being asserted against the NFL or Daniel Snyder, it is simply an action to recover funds from a bank. Yeah, I, I mean, the fact that it's raising more questions than we had, we had many. <laughs> That's one wild development. I mean, in March of this year, uh, and this was days after he put in the $7 billion bid to buy the commanders, him and his company were sued uh, for failing to pay over $300,000 in loan. So, you know, the questions we've had around Brian Davis and legitimacy, we, we know one thing is that we can't blame Bank of America for whatever due diligence or, or caution that they have taken and chosen to proceed with in uh, navigating the, the potential offer and deal. Uh, you know, at this point, the Josh Harris group was clearly the more secure, viable and trustworthy option for Dan Snyder and the NFL to pursue. Yeah, I don't think there's any question here that this lawsuit has very little chance of derailing Josh Harris's path to ownership. Uh, but it's but it's a case we're going to obviously track because it is uh, sensational in some of the discoveries that were made over the last 24 hours. If we had questions as to the source of funding from Brian Davis all along, I think those those questions have been magnified by a factor of a thousand when you take a closer look at his at his filing. Yeah. And I'll just pose this question to you because I've seen people discussing this. You know, some have speculated that this could potentially derail a deal with Josh Harris. You don't think it can. Let me ask you, in, in what sense would it happen uh, that it could derail? How could that possibly even happen where this lawsuit would derail a deal? Unless he's asking for preliminary injunctive relief or a court order to stop the NFL sale process. Um, a case like this that proceeds to a judgment won't do so until 2024, 2025, long after the commander's franchise has been sold. So if uh, Brian Davis or Urban Echo want to get in, into the queue uh, to override, uh, you know, Mr., uh, you know, to, to override Josh Harris's bid, he's got to make his case to the NFL. He's got to make his case to Dan Snyder. Dan Snyder is obviously aware from reading the news that, there's this fellow by the name of Brian Davis who claims to have made a $7.1 billion bid. I'm sure, I'm sure even on his yacht in the Caribbean, hmm. uh, Dan Snyder is privy directly or indirectly to that information. So the case is to be made to the league or to Snyder. Failing that without a court ruling preliminarily like a TRO, uh, this isn't going to stop anything. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely cannot see that happening. And, and, and the league is under no obligation to accept the highest offer. You look at where the money is sourced, it raises so many questions and it, uh, it, it calls into, you know, some significant doubt, the legitimacy of Brian Davis as a serious bidder. So um, notably, his lawsuit is not paired with the request for preliminary injunctive relief or temporary restraining order and does not name the commanders, Dan Snyder, or the National Football League as necessary or indispensable parties. Right. And ultimately, you know, we'll keep track of this lawsuit and follow where it goes. Uh, yeah. Hopefully uh, we do get to discover it because that would just, you know, produce some yeah. juicy stuff for us to look into. Um, but really, really interesting. This one came uh, caught wind of it yesterday and uh, tweeted it out. And the responses have just been great, some great buzz around it. And it, it, it's really interesting. 
I'd love to know why Davis, through his company, believes that Snyder would have accepted it. I wonder if there were some kind of communications that make him say that, or is he just conjuring that up out of thin air? Yeah. Uh, I'd also love to know how you found this lawsuit. This was one of the great uh, you know, sports law investigative fines of the last year, because, you know, if, if you if you look for a lawsuit with the NFL or Snyder or the commanders, easy. You, you look at the court dockets for the names in the caption. But this is just simply Urban Echo versus Bank of America. This is not going to be on most people's radars. You're not even going to know to look for it. So all the credit to you for being savvy enough to understand that Urban Echo was Brian Davis's company. And a lawsuit like this in the District of Maryland probably would have escaped notice had you not found it. So congratulations. Another, uh, another exclusive uh, from yeah. Morin and, and conduct detrimental. So we turn now to our second story, maybe even more surprising a vote, a public vote on a privately financed new hockey arena for the Arizona coyotes failed. There were three propositions, proposition 301, 302 and 303 that uh, proposed, uh, you know, changes to the city of Tempe's land use plans and zoning code to allow for the development of a hockey arena, as well as related entertainment and, you know, residential district. And for for quite a while, the polling, or at least the the, the conventional wisdom, is that is that this measure was going to pass overwhelmingly because the team wasn't looking for public money. They were going to finance the, the the construction of the arena by themselves. Of course, they were going to get tax breaks, and uh, the city was going to pay for some of the remediation costs associated with this site, which was a landfill, a dump. But the voters ended up deciding that they preferred a dump, a landfill, over an NHL franchise. And we're going to bring on today ESPN senior reporter Greg Wyshynski to, one, break down what happened, and two, probably the, mo the more important question, looking ahead as to what's next. Is there going to be a relocation? What cities are going to be in the running? And you know, third, are there any backup options for the Arizona Coyotes to remain in the state of Arizona? And what about the potential downstream impacts to players on the roster, such as Clayton Keller, who has already uh, begun to make waves of not wanting to play for the Coyotes next year, as well as some of their draftees, such as Logan Cooley, who has announced he's going to be returning to the University of Minnesota. This is a this is a collegiate player who averaged two points a game at one of the most storied college programs in the NCAA. It was clearly going to be a a contender for the Calder Trophy had he decided to come out and, and, and play his rookie year in the 2023-2024 season. Instead, in the aftermath of this uh, vote going south, Cooley has announced his intention to return to college. Will he end up becoming the next Kevin Hayes, Jimmy Vesey, Adam Fox, and become the most desired, un, the most desired collegiate free agent on August 15th, 2026? So we're going to explore all those issues uh, with one of the best hockey writers going, Greg Rashinsky. But I want to ask for your impressions, Jason, as to what you think was the, you know, sort of what's your takeaway from the adverse vote in the city of Tempe? Because it knocked everybody for loop. Nobody, nobody really saw this coming. Yeah, I, I was totally stunned, just like everybody else was. I, I really thought this was a slam dunk from the beginning. I thought the Tempe wins campaign, you know, was was run 
well from the information that I saw. And everyone was just so excited for hockey and Tempe and for the, the Coyotes to finally thrive and have a permanent home. And, you know, that's what we're all hoping for. I don't think anybody really wants to see this franchise continuously go through the turmoil that it has uh, with such passionate fans there. And it just begs me to think about some of the shortcomings that, that may have happened here. I mean, you know, one of the main problems, speaking of the campaign, is that Tempe wins and the Coyotes were outspent. You know, how does that happen? I think they out. I think the Coyotes outspent the opposition in terms of overall funding, maybe on the advertising. The uh, opponents brought more assets to the table. I think that's the. I think that might be number one of the one of the key issues here. Did the Coyotes believe their own internal polling and take their foot off the the, the gas pedal, a la Hillary Clinton in in the twenty sixteen presidential election when she's going away clearly in the lead over over Donald Trump, and then Trump prevails uh, on election day? Did the Coyotes believe their own? press clippings and their own internal polling. And did they not give, did they, did they not do everything that they could have done in the weeks leading yeah. to election day? Right. And, you know, I, I really do think they, they badly misjudged the voters. It, it's not so uncommon in terms of the returns by age group. You have about 40% of voters were 55 and up and voters 18 to 24 years old were only about three to 4%. Why weren't the Coyotes in their campaign at Arizona State University registering students to vote? Those are the kind of voters they needed to get out more in order to win this. And they needed to convince these students that, you know, you, you take a short trip to Tempe and, and you enjoy a game with a great entertainment district and area. And that was part of the failure and part of uh, Tempe wins in the Coyotes. Well, they were co-opted, I think, by the Tempe first group because there were some Arizona State University students that were quoted as being part of the opposition. So I think the, I think the Coyotes ownership was beaten to the punch, but I think this battle was lost in November, uh, roughly a half a year before the special election, because, you know, coming from the world of sports betting and, and the, the legalization efforts that take place on the state level, you never want to leave it in the hands of the voters. If the state legislature has the authority to pass the measure, it's much easier to convince seven members of the Tempe City Council or four out of seven members to approve a measure than it is to go to the risk and uncertainty of thousands of, of voters who aren't as easily corralled and influenced as state lawmakers or at least at the Tempe level, city lawmakers, members of the city commission. And this, this goes back all the way to January of 2022 when the intention at that time was to present the uh, land use. I, th I think it was a it was it was a, a general plan amendment to basically have the property recharacterized from commercial to mixed use. But it was not a major plan amendment. It was characterized as a minor general plan amendment that had a, sort of a rezoning of commercial to mixed use and higher densities involved. That did not need to be presented to the electorate. And at the time of some of this early reporting by Craig Morgan of Phoenix Sports, supposedly the Coyotes had three out of the seven city council members on their side ready to vote yes. Two were against, two were undecided. And one of the issues that became a, a contentious deal point was how much of the remediation costs were going, were going to be absorbed by the Coyotes ownership group. 
versus how much would be paid by the city. And, and I think the estimate was that it would take 70 to $80 million to clean up, environmentally clean up this former landfill site. And the Coyotes were willing to put up 40 million of it. And the reporting from Craig Morgan suggests that had the Coyotes been, been willing to fund the entire remediation cost, this would have been a done deal. Instead, they were penny wise, pound foolish. And later on that year, the city council decided to refer the matter to a public vote when the Coyotes were only one vote short and had the wherewithal to convince other members who were on the fence to vote for their side had there been a greater financial package offered by the Coyotes. So this is a bet the company situation. There's no going home. You lose this battle. You lose this initiative. It places the future of the franchise in, in, a, in, a, in a matter of serious uncertainty and might lead to the relocation of the team. We're going to talk about that with Greg, but if you're the Coyotes, and these are the two foreseeable alternatives. You leave no stone unturned. You pony up the money. You avoid the uncertainty of a public vote. So I think this 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 war was lost when they when when the Coyotes did not prevail upon the city council to pass the measure as a legislative matter and instead allow this to go to a public vote. Once that happened, uh, you're dealing with something beyond your control. I totally agree with you. I think. Uh... You know, you never leave it up to chance for something so instrum instrumental in the franchise's history. You can't leave it up to voters who you don't know, and they didn't make a great enough effort to get to know. And, and back when this first went to referendum, just to take a step back, so the two groups we're referencing, the first is Tempe First, which is an opposition group who, you know, heavily promoted voting no to the three propositions we've discussed. And the, the group that the Coyotes had is called Tempe Wind. And they were the ones pushing for the vote to be yes to build the stadium and move the Coyotes to Tempe. Now, what Tempe first did, I think, was very, very smart. And I think it landed with voters. Their slogan was no handouts to billionaires. And I even think they called the uh, Coyotes owner corrupt, a corrupt billionaire. So their entire campaign strategy was to, you know, kind of paint this project as coming out of the citizens uh, taxpayer money and that it was a handout to another billionaire. And it really landed with the voters. And I don't think the Coyotes did enough to kind of dispel some of the false, uh, kind of the falsehoods that were that were going around about how this was being funded and, and what it would do to their tax money. I mean, you know, this landfill is still going to have to be cleaned up. And this was a privately funded project in the majority that was not as bad as a, as a tax uh, burden as a future project may be. And, you know, as soon as this went to referendum, Tempe First has had a presence. And I think part of the problem was that the Coyotes, led by their CEO, uh, Xavier Gutierrez, he decided to wait until after the Super Bowl to really start pushing and campaigning. And the, the quote that kept uh, circulating from Gutierrez was that he wanted to wait until after the Super Bowl so that this was top of mind. And I think from that point, he just waited too long. And Tempe First just made such an impact in that amount of time that they were playing catch up and ultimately couldn't. Yeah, this is not the first time that an NHL uh, arena project has failed at the at, at the polls. Uh, Ten years ago, I mean, Jason, you went to Hofstra University. There was a, a New York Islanders proposed new stadium in in uh, you know at the Nassau Hub that it was called the Lighthouse Project, and the town of Hempstead, you know, put this on a on a referendum for the you know citizens of of Hempstead to to vote upon, and 
it got rejected. And as a result of it getting rejected, the Islanders ended up moving to Brooklyn and now we're in, you know, you know, Bel you know the Belmont area. Uh, so past history shows that if you're looking for handouts for a professional sports team, the electorate is not going to take too kindly from that, take too kindly to that. And all of these deals to provide funding for new stadiums, these were all done at the legislative level. In New York State, Governor Hockel earmarked uh, close to $800 million to the Buffalo Bills. That was part of the New York State budget last year, and that was approved legislatively, never went to a vote. Same thing with the Tennessee Titans, yeah, new stadium deal. Invariably, the, uh, the teams extort concessions from lawmakers and legislators. They never want it to go to a public vote because guess what? The public is not going to be overly sympathetic uh, to a billionaire owner, particularly in a market such as Arizona that has made the playoffs only nine times in 26 years, has gone through multiple bad owners, bankruptcies, losing seasons, tanking. Uh, the, the atmosphere was not necessarily the most positive one for a public vote. I mean, if you're winning the Stanley Cup or you're competing for the playoffs year after year after year, I think you build up some reservoir of goodwill. But the Coyotes, who were evicted from the city of Glendale for non-payment of state taxes, local taxes, have a reputation for stiffing their vendors and squeezing concessions out of their vendors. Their on-the-ice product didn't, was not an attractive one. And given their history, it was incredibly short-sighted to expect that the public, and in particular, the city of Tempe electorate, would have any sympathy for the uh, you know, Arizona Coyotes uh, proposition. And I think it was naive for the Coyotes to let it go to a public vote instead of working the back room and convincing the city council to vote in favor of it. If you don't like this city council, you, there are always going to be new elections and you could you could throw money at new candidates. That's what the San Francisco 49ers did in Santa Clara. They didn't like their, their local city council. Well, they just elected new ones that would side with them. And there was a game plan. There was a long, there was a, there was a, a long view that they could have taken to win this either through a positive city council vote or just to change the city council until you got four of them who liked your project. And instead they picked the path of the greatest resistance and ended up losing. And the consequence here may be that the 10th largest market in the United States will be without an NHL team, which raises the question, uh, where do you see this? Where do you see this ultimately heading? A relocation, or just a, a revised deal somewhere else, or even in the same place within Arizona? Do you have any any thoughts as to where you see the logical next step? Yeah, I, I think the immediate answer in the short term is that we're going to see the Coyotes back at Bullet Arena next season. I don't envision anything either in the way of relocation or staying in Arizona, it, it, you know, the Twitter account is now putting out polls of which city they should play, in, uh, which has been unbelievable to follow. I never thought I would see that from a team's Twitter account. Ultimately, I think they're in Mold Arena next season with the 5,000 5, person capacity. And I really, really hope they can make this work in Arizona, whether it's Mesa or otherwise. Yeah. That is really my hope. But you know, there's just no evidence to say why this next city will work you know, versus why the last one didn't. Yeah. So my ultimate prediction is that this is going to end in relocation. I do believe that now. I think it could still work in Arizona. I think the options on the table are to go back to the city council of Tempe with either the same proposal, which probably wouldn't make political sense anyway if the voters just rejected it, but narrow 
the scope and breadth of the existing proposal, maybe eliminate some of the, uh, you know, residential units and have a skinnier project that won't raise issues with the city of Phoenix or the, or, or the Phoenix airport, uh, come back with a, a modified project, have it approved by the city commission, pony up more money as a team, as a franchise, pay for more of the remediation costs. And maybe you get city approval at some point in 2023 or 2024, and you could move forward with maybe a delay of nine months to a year. Uh, short of that, I think you got to be looking at, at a tribal reservation, potentially, um, city of Phoenix, but the sight lines at that arena are not conducive to hockey. Or I think where they should have gone all along was Scottsdale. That's where the most. That's where your customer base is from, and uh, Scottsdale would would have been sort of the uh, the ideal, I think, market to house an a, a, you know an NHL franchise like the Arizona Coyotes. If they look abroad, they look outside the state. Uh, you know the theme of the theme of our of our podcast is Brass Bonanza, which was the theme song of the Hartford Whalers. I don't think Hartford is going to get another NHL team in our lifetime, but I am partial to the former WHA franchise known as the Quebec Nordiques. I love their uniform. I love, uh, as a fan of 80s NHL hockey, I crave more Nordiques, Montreal Canadiens rivalries. You know, Dallas and Houston, that could be, that could be an interesting rivalry, but there's no history there. Montreal and Quebec... That's steeped in ethnic and hockey history. And my personal my personal choice would be the Quebec Nordiques. But uh, we've got so many questions and so many areas to cover with our next guest. I think we covered a lot of the localized issues concerning why the why the why the measure failed on the ground in Phoenix. But we want I want to talk to Greg about what options the National Hockey League has on the table. What are viable Arizona options? What are viable out-of-state relocation options, and how this is going to impact uh, the league, its players, the team's players and draftees. And, and we'll, we're going to bring Greg on to discuss all of these issues next. As promised, joining us today to try to make sense of this Arizona Coyotes you know, disaster of a public vote is ESPN's senior writer and the founder of the Puck Daddy blog and the co former co-host of Puck Soup, Greg Wyshynski, welcome to Conduct Detrimental for your maiden uh, appearance. It's great to be here, man. I'm a longtime follower on the old Twitter machine, and uh, it's it's great to uh, try to talk to somebody about all of this. I've been covering this, and this being the Coyotes mess for over a decade now, and it uh, it there was a sense of finality, and then none there may not be. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> well, I mean, the first question right off the bat, Greg. I mean. There are so many issues hovering over this franchise, dark clouds, multiple ownership changes, bankruptcies. They even had a minority owner forced out for allegedly strangling his wife. I mean, that's sort of a first uh, eviction from Glendale. Now we have the failure of a public vote for a new uh, stadium or new arena project that wasn't going to involve any public money except for remediation costs. For the former landfill site and 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 a and a uh I, I think there were some tax breaks, but by and large, this new arena was going to be privately funded by the Coyotes ownership group. So how could it have failed? Polling was showing that it was running in the high 50s. What went wrong here based upon your observations of you know and knowledge of the history of this? So 
You mentioned that it's mostly privately funded, and at one point nine billion of a two point one billion dollar project was going to be privately funded by Alex Morello, their owner. Um, the for those who don't know, the 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 Coyotes Arena wasn't just an arena; it was an entertainment center, and, and part of the entertainment center was going to be a casino, and part of it was going to be residential houses. And those two things are very important because one, you had a lot of people saying we don't want a casino in in, in that corner of, of of Tempe, so that was one thing that was uh, contentious. The residential housing part of it actually in resulted in a lawsuit from the city of Phoenix with regard to the airport that's located somewhat near where the site was going to be. And it would involve flight patterns and uh, an, an old uh, statute from like the 1980s. It's very complicated, but let it be known that putting residential houses there, the residential housing there was going to be an issue as well. How did they lose it? Well, we just mentioned 1.9 of 2.1. Well, that means that there is public funds for this project. And while you could make the argument that if you're cleaning up a landfill, you're going to have to use public funds at some point, which was the argument the Coyotes were making, uh, it was still grist for the mill for the opponents of this project to say, don't give tax breaks to billionaires. Don't use public funding to build arenas. You know, they could say that and they were right because there was a modicum of public funding involved. So they ran on that. They ran on the casino thing. There was the problem with the residential thing. The Glendale stuff you mentioned with the Coyotes uh, being evicted from basically their arena there, having a lot of financial strife about missed payments and things like that, that followed them to Tempe. And there was a lot of concern about, okay, what if this project all of a sudden gets weird with the Coyotes trying to like break the deal or something? So that was floating in the ether. There's a lot out there, but what it came down to, because I, because I, again, I talked to the Coyotes that week and they thought they were up by 10 points in the polling. What it came down to is get out the vote. And their opponents were very, very early and effective in their messaging. Um, there is some dispute as to whether their opponents spent more money or the Coyotes did. The Coyotes disputed that with me, that they believed that they spent more money in messaging, but their opponents were well-funded. And then there was one other thing I found out after the vote uh, didn't pass, which is that while the Coyotes got a number of labor unions in line with this proposal and, and got endorsements from like labor unions, former mayors, city council, all these people, there was a couple of unions or at least one union that would have been central to building the arena that they didn't get. And um, and they, could, they weren't going to guarantee union jobs for that part of the project. And you know, growing up in a union house myself, having covered politics before, that could be the difference in a, in a close local vote. It's just having that get out the vote mechanism in place. And they they didn't have that for this one. So I think the other side was well organized and, and more motivated. And the last thing I'll say about that, too, and I'm sorry to ramble on this, but because there's a lot, a lot to it. Uh, it's a local vote. It's in Tempe. Um, there are a lot of Coyotes fans in Scottsdale, in Phoenix in other parts that aren't Tempe. If this was a Maricopa County vote, I think it passes like pretty easy, but it's a Tempe vote. And, and it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. You want to build the arena to make fans in Tempe. You can't make fans in Tempe till you build the arena. And the fans in Tempe are the ones that can help you build the arena. So it, it became kind of a, a chicken or the egg thing a little bit for them too. Yeah, I mean, I question whether this even needed to go to a public vote. I, re I read some of the land use yeah. amendments and, and proposals. This was not legally required to be conducted as a special election. The, the, the city council could have just approved this. Right. There wasn't enough support on the city council because there wasn't enough money coming from the coyotes to remediate the landfill site. So instead of persuading that fourth member of the city council to pass it, 
they left it to the uncertainty of a ballot referendum. And you just never know how those things are going to go. Yep. Yeah, that's that's correct, and 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 you're and you're right. I mean, it, it. I think that just shows you though the political sensitivity of approving this project and how the Coyotes, as a franchise, as a brand, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but they became kind of unreliable because of all the Glendale stuff. So you, after Glendale happens, and and everybody in in that part of the world has seen the city council meetings and and all of the conjecture and all of the the back and forth between them and 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 the place they used to play. I don't think the city council politically uh, felt comfortable just signing off on this project without bringing it to a public vote. Okay. But they also thought the public vote was a formality. I and mean, let's be honest, like they signed off on this deal. They hardly endorsed it. A lot of politicians, including the current current mayor, endorsed it. They did throw it to, like you said, to like caution, you know, to the wind on this one a little bit. But they also thought that they had it in the bag, I think. Well, the Islanders had a similar false sense of security 10 years ago with that lighthouse project that ended yeah. up being rejected by the voters and it sent the Islanders on an odyssey to Brooklyn and then back to, back to, uh, you know, Elmont. Uh, yep. But this, before we turn to the in-state options that are available, as well as the potential relocation options, I have a more fundamental question. Uh, when you look at the size of the, of, of the Arizona market, it's thought to be, you know, the 10th largest market, you know, I guess in the United States. And when you, when you compare it to Tampa, it's certainly a much more important market. Yet yeah. Gary Bettman was able to hand deliver to gift Jeff Vinnick <laughs> to the to to the Tampa Bay area to rescue that franchise from the clutches of Len Barry. How come <laughs> Bettman hasn't been able to find uh, a sort of a, a desert version of Jeff? He doesn't even have to be from the desert. He could be a hedge fund guy from New York like Jeff Vinnick. Why has the league faltered in placing the right owner in this? desirable market there certainly are better owners than than the morellos and there are other jeff vinnick types out there why has bettman not been able to uh thread this needle it's a good question i i tend to believe that part of it is the very thing we're talking about which is the arena issue i mean if you go to tampa now and it's like vinnick land right like like their arena is there and then all of this development that jeff vinnick has helped create around it like I, it blew my mind to go cover the lightning this year and then walk two blocks and there was a Whole Foods because there certainly wasn't a Whole Foods next to that arena when I first started covering that team. But now because of Vinick and because of the success, uh, the success of the franchise and the, and the growth of the fan base, there's been all this development around that arena. Well, the, the, um, real, the, think, winning, the winning begets winning. You know, Steve Cohen, if he wins a World sure. Series, well, the winning is whatever but, he wants but, but, in New York City. But you have to remember, like, the arena in Tampa is where the fans are. And and, and I, I think part of the issue with finding a Jeff Vinnick, as you said, for the Coyotes, is that everyone knew playing in Glendale was a disaster. And so if you buy the team, now you've got to find a place to build the arena. And, and part of the reason that Alex Morello was seen as that guy for Batman that could turn this this franchise around is that he was motivated to buy the team and eventually move them to build this comp this entertainment complex because he's one of the only he's he holds one of the few I think he's one of the few guys that holds a license in Arizona to do the thing that he wanted to do with the casino and everything. He's got non and he, and he owns casino in Vegas. Yeah. yeah, he's got he's got a, a license right, right. to operate so, a sports book. Right, he's got a license. So, so I think, well, it's not Jeff Vinnick. Certainly, um, especially reputationally, he, he they did find somebody who they that that would want to buy the team 
to then build something for that team. And, and, and it just didn't work. Yeah. So I think the question that everyone now wants to know is where do we go from here? And is this the end of the coyotes as we know them? Uh, you know, is there a path forward towards hockey staying in Arizona? Because that's what many fans want to see. And just for the sake of hockey and for this franchise, uh, I would love to see hockey move forward in Arizona successfully. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how that could possibly happen. Or are we looking at the opposite and, you know, this is the sign of the end and it's time to start looking externally. So I wrote a column about this on ESPN last week um, about the vote and the future of the Coyotes. And you know, the first thing I'll say is that <clears throat> I, I don't think that the end of the Coyotes in Arizona is the end of hockey in Arizona, uh, nor should it be. I mean, it's a great market. Um, there's a lot of youth hockey that sprung up there. I mean, famously, Austin Matthews, one of the biggest hockey stars in the world, grew up a Coyotes fan. Um, like there, there are, there's every reason to believe that it could succeed there. And there's every reason to keep trying because of the market. That being said, it kind of feels like the end of the road for this version of hockey in Arizona. Um, there was a finale to that, to that vote that you could feel, um, Gary Bettman in his statement did not talk about the future of hockey in Arizona. He did not, you know, he's always been proactive about that. A lot of people say that he's been more passionate about keeping the Coyotes in Arizona than on any issue that he's 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 been with uh, as commissioner. The Coyotes themselves, you can feel a palpable sense of deflation. Um, we'll get to how they've handled that in a second. But as far as the relocation markets go, we, we I, I broke the story last week that they're going to play one more season, at least in Mullet Arena. Um, I think that's very smart. Um, there is no plug and play Winnipeg type option right now for this team, even Quebec City. Um, they... Uh, when 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 it was determined that Atlanta was moving, that was determined like in the middle of May, and then two weeks later they announced Winnipeg. There's no option like that right now. So give yourself some time to find out what the right market's going to be. Give yourself some time to figure out who could own the team. And Daniel, you know, like the, the franchise valuations right now in the NHL are incredible. Like you know, we're looking at over a billion dollars for the Ottawa Senators. Um, you know, the the money the Fenway Group just paid for the Penguins. Like you're going to be able to find a pretty decent amount of change. Um, for someone to buy this franchise. The nuance is what markets do you see as relocation markets? What re what markets do you see as potential expansion markets? So you're looking at Houston, which I think is the favorite to be the next NHL city in some way, shape or form. Salt Lake City, in both cases, the NBA owner there wants to have an NHL team in their building. In Salt Lake City's case, the intrigue is that the Delta Center, which was built in 1991, probably is going to get replaced by the time the Olympics roll around in Salt Lake City in either 30 or 34, I think it is. You have places like Atlanta again, Milwaukee, Kansas City has an arena ready. Quebec City is always in play. Portland, they'd love to go to. There's a number of places, but the two that I think to focus on right now are Houston and Salt Lake City. And then it becomes a question of, okay, Houston is such a massive market. Maybe you look at that as an expansion place versus a relocation place. But the biggest, bigger question there is, you know, the NHL will have to be a tenant in Houston right now. Because Tillman Fertitta owns the arena, owns the Rockets. And that's been a kind of a sticking block for the NHL. Is they, if they want to go to a market like Houston, they want it to be like Vegas. You know, they're, they want their team to have their own place and, and reap all the revenue benefits and not have to share it in a minority way with the Rockets. How important are rivalries to the NHL's perspective? I mean, this, this balanced <clears throat> schedule has really you know, neutered and watered down the traditional rivalries. The Rangers and Devils only see each other four times until the seven-game series. Rangers and Islanders only play four times. How important is it to activate a Dallas-slash-Houston rivalry 
or to return to the high-flying days of the 1980s with the Quebec Nordiques and the Montreal Canadiens activating that segment of the French Canadian fan base. Those uniforms were just amazing. And as a, as yeah. a hockey fan, I'm more interested in the growth of rivalries than the growth of the game to new markets. Or we should put the then we should move the Coyotes to Hartford, shouldn't we? I mean, hell, that well, was a, that was a the great theme, the theme. Throw, throw that team right in there. <laughs> you know, if if you ever listen to our podcast, we open and close with Brass Bonanza, Brian Burke's favorite song. Yeah, I, I, and when I wrote my column, I I said I wrote I had to include Hartford in there, or else I couldn't show my face in the ESPN Cafe in Bristol because they would have <laughs> killed me if I didn't at least mention Hartford. Uh, rivalries do matter. I mean, let's let's be honest. You know, when Seattle was given their franchise. One of the things that was cited was now now we have a team in close proximity with Vancouver and what a rivalry that could be. I mean, it's one of the reasons they've talked about Portland is to have three teams up in the Pacific Northwest. And funny you mentioned Houston. I covered the Dallas Stars in game seven against the Kraken. And I noticed that their slogan for the playoffs, and it's probably extended beyond the playoffs, but their slogan for the playoffs is uh, Texas hockey, you know. I thought to myself, oh, that's really interesting that you are trying to own the corner on Texas hockey. You probably throw it a little trademark next to that term already because you know there's a possibility that, that there will be another team in Texas at some point. And that rivalry would be great. Portland, uh, uh, you know, Seattle would be great. The Quebec one, though, is interesting. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Like, I think the modus operandi for the NHL under Bettman in maybe the last like 20 years has been growing new fans and not underscoring the ones they already have. And I've talked to a lot of people around the league that believe that while Quebec City could be profitable, potentially, it doesn't make new fans in the way that Houston does, in the way that Portland does, in the way that Kansas City would, Oklahoma City. Like, their idea is we need to grow our foot, our footprint. We need to change our demographics. Very important to Batman. And I think that a move to Quebec or another Canadian city doesn't accomplish that in the same way that a move to a U.S. city does. I wanted to transition to, you know, we've been talking about team, 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 and franchise and owner. Let's talk about the players because they are heavily impacted by this and have been for a while. Number one, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on maybe what the players think about playing in Mullet Arena and what their thoughts are on the Coyotes long term. You know, we've gotten comments now from from Clayton Keller or at least speculation that uh, he'd, he'd like to see some direction uh, on where the franchise is going and with his impending free agency. And also we have Logan Cooley, who's returning to Minnesota uh, for his sophomore season. And he likely would have been in the Calder running had he played last year. I mean, talk about NHL ready. Yeah. This is a kid who just dominated the country. Uh, do you think that what's going on with the franchise and the vote implicated uh, Cooley's decision and where are players generally standing on this as they approach free agency and the like. Yeah, Cooley's decision, I think, was separate from the vote. Uh, I think that was one, having covered the Frozen Four a little bit, I think that was one that people anticipated was going to happen. They would stay in school for another year. But but I do think it's going to be fascinating to see what his feelings are about the future of this franchise, because he's a tremendous player. I mean, he might be the best player in that draft. The Keller thing was, for those who don't know, is quite comical. His father tweeted out something about how, how Keller wasn't happy and won't be playing for the Coyotes when the season starts. He then claimed to Craig Morgan, uh, a local reporter, that he was hacked, making this the first time in the history of hacking that someone hacked an account after a arena vote to talk about somebody's son, maybe not playing for a franchise. Look, I've covered hacking for a long time as a digital journalist. I think this might have been one of those things where he forgot to toggle to the burner account. That's just what I'm saying. That's again, 
No evidence of that. Right. Kind of following the dominant calling here. So Keller might not be. I mean, Keller's a great player. He's got a long-term contract. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't give grief to any of these guys if they don't want to do this again. Like um, they were playing in mullet for a very specific reason, which was to then get an arena in Tempe with the promise of that happening. And that's not happening. Now they're, they've transitioned to this idea of maybe, maybe moving to Mesa, a former mall site. That again is going to be another potential public vote. I was told by the, by a team executive that there was no plan B after this didn't pass. So the idea that now they're flopping and flailing and trying to create a, a plan, you know, J it's like, it's just too much. If I'm a player, like I, I just can't, can't deal with it anymore. And the players around the league too, like you have to remember that, that this is, this is a, a league issue. Um, the, the money they don't bring in playing at mullet is a league issue. The players from around the league having to play in mullet is a league issue. And I've had some guys tell me like, it's kind of fun, like playing in a 5,000 seat arena, it brings you back to junior or college and then have guys being like, this is a joke <laughs> like this. This should not be happening for a National Hockey League team. Uh, and remember, it's not just like last year and this year. It's potentially two more seasons after this, too, yeah. um, them playing in a, an NCAA arena. So it's a in, tough in, look. In a flat cap where the you know salary cap has only increased a couple of percentage points over a you know, multi-year yeah. period. And I think playing in a in a in a. 5,000 seat arena, you know, adversely impacts the hockey related revenue yeah. and keeps the salary cap uh, artificially deflated. But uh, at what point to, to close this out? I know, you know, you got to go soon, but at what point does Gary Bettman begin to lose faith in the Morello in Alex Morello as an owner of an NHL franchise? Has he, has that, is there, are we already at the point of no return with that ownership group Given its history, given the history in the market, I can't think of another NHL team that has been constructively ev evicted for not paying state taxes, having bad relationships with the tenant, having landlord-tenant disputes, and squeezing creditors on you know nickeling and diming creditors, and now not being able to get a sure thing over the line. When will Bettman lose faith and just say, you know what, uh, that's it for this group. We're going to look at other options. It's a complicated question. Because you could argue he maybe has lost faith in the Coyotes remaining in Arizona based on the statement that he put out. Like I said, like for, for those who don't know, like Gary Bettman has been intimately involved in this franchise for over a decade now. Uh, they, they were put in bankruptcy court by um, uh, one owner, uh, Jim Balsilli, the BlackBerry guy, tried to buy them through the bankruptcy process, get around the Board of Governors to move them to Hamilton. By the way, in the new BlackBerry movie, they do have an actor playing Gary Bettman, and they do reenact many of the scenes from Balsilli trying to buy the team. And I've seen them. They're great. <laughs> Bettman has, like you said, he's found other owners, you know, the Ice Edge and Jerry Reinsdorf and like all of these names through the last decade of people that have flirted with buying the team or have bought the team. And, and Gary's been very adamant about trying to keep them there. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time when he would, he would make statements like, the Arizona Coyotes are going nowhere or, you know, this franchise is going to work and all this other stuff. And we didn't hear that this week. So, I mean, there's something to be said for maybe him being a little exhausted by this process, too. But the other thing I'll say is that one of the things that Bettman has also been very adamant about for decades, and I've covered him for a very long time, is teams staying in the market until someone until no one wants to own them. Uh, and the team stays in the market until there's no one nowhere else to play. And so. Like you could argue that, okay, this they don't have a place anymore to play because the arena plan didn't work. That'd be strike one, but but they don't, but Morello still wants to own the team. Like he, he truly, 
in my conversations with people that know him, it's not simply just like, I bought the team to build a casino. Like there's a certain amount of like legitimate family legacy he's looking to establish with this franchise, like making it something in that market, handing the keys to his kids one day. Like, like that's, that's part of this. And, and so on the one hand, you have this, this part of it, of Batman who says they should move because they don't have a place to play. And on the other hand, you have this part of Batman that says, but you, they do have somebody who wants to own the team and use his money at a, probably a, you know, a loss leader uh, based on his other businesses to own the team. And and so I don't know where, 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 where Gary's mind is going to be on this one. We'll find out soon. I mean, he's going to be at the draft and all these other events. And Lord knows the French guys in the back of the room will be raising their hands to ask about Quebec City like they always used to. But we'll get a better sense of, of I think, what the NHL is thinking on this. Oh. Um, and, and also, I guess, the NHL is thinking about this new Mesa arena plan that the Coyotes have put out there to try to, like, put the fire out. Well, uh, Greg, if you're at the press conference, hopefully you could put in a good word for Hartford. And uh, maybe uh, this is just the beginning. Really, this this vote is just the beginning of the next, you know, saga of the you know Arizona Coyotes journey. Uh, who knows where it leads? Clayton Keller may be wearing a different uniform next year. Logan Cooley might be the most impactful uh, college free agent on, eight, on August 15th, 2026. There's a lot still remaining to explore here. Thank we we thank you so much uh, for spending yeah. spending your time uh, joining us on Conduct Detrimental to kind of flesh through all these various tributaries of the story because there are so many angles and it is a pleasure as always and I hope you'll consider coming back and uh, being a guest on our podcast again. This is always it's always great uh, to have yeah. the first time we've had you and uh, you you were terrific. Uh, thanks again for for joining us today. Would love to. Um, my only hope is that we find a way to get uh, Deadpool to own one, own the Coyotes. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to happen in, in, in Ottawa. I need I need Ryan Reynolds in full Deadpool gear at the Board of Governors meeting. Just quack, cracking wise in the back of the room. It's my dream. Yeah, we absolutely do. And thank you, Greg. Enjoy the rest of the playoffs. And uh, we really, really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was... ESPN senior hockey writer Greg Wyshynski helping break down, you know, the sort of the diagnosis of the failure of the Arizona Coyotes uh, arena vote. And there you have it. I mean, there are a lot of questions that still remain to be uh, a lot of questions still to be answered. And we'll find out over the course of the next year whether there are any viable in-state options or whether this is just going to be the next NHL relocation. Yeah. And and I really, really hope this works out in Arizona with that passionate fan base and just they got to find a city to make this work. They got to find a stadium to make this work. And hopefully the current owner uh, is sufficient to make this work as well. Although we don't have evidence of that, but we really counter, a terrific we have counter evidence of that. <laughs> right. Absolutely. We have much counter evidence of that, but yeah, this was terrific. And to have Greg on who has been at the forefront of the story. And like he said, he broke the news of, of the team staying at Mullet arena for at least next season. Um, and, you know, he's really one of the, the, the top NHL reporters nationally. Yep. Yep. No question about it. You know, he, he and I have been following each other on Twitter for a couple of years and I know you and he have engaged. It was really fun to meet him for the first time. And uh, now we know. Him. So Greg will hopefully come back and join us on a future episode of conduct detrimental. This was, this is just a fun episode to do. We've covered a sort of a double barreled episode. The uh, you know, Dan Snyder, Washington commanders continued quagmire uh, leading to litigation from, you know, unexpected sources and 
leading us all the way back potentially to former Philippines president Ferdinand Marcos. And now we have the, uh, you know, the continuation of the Arizona Coyotes uh, uncertain ownership and uncertain arena situation, which is now uh, which is now in a state of flux as this public vote has resoundingly uh, rejected the, the, the Coyotes stadium proposal. So now now we wait to see where the other shoe will drop. All in all, it was a fun episode, Jason. It was our first time. It was the Dan and Jason podcast. Uh, let's do this again. Uh, we, you and I could really focus on, on NHL issues and hockey issues going forward, and there's no shortage of those. So hopefully you and I will be able to team up again on a future Conduct Detrimental episode. We hope everybody enjoyed this. Uh, when you have a chance, uh, go go give us a, a good rating on, on, on Apple or Spotify. And, you know, every week we bring the best stories in sports law broken down by lawyers, uniquely by lawyers. These are these are inevitably stories that connect the sports industry and law and business. And I think we're the best ones at being able to sort of break down the legal implications of these stories. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to your point, we should definitely do more hockey. We are the two resident Ranger fans on the podcast. And just a, a, a funny nugget, when Greg first joined, he he blurted an expletive at me because he saw my Rangers hat. As many of you know, he being a New Jersey native and a big Devils fan, uh, he is openly anti-Rangers. But, you know, the rest of us on this episode are, are pro-Rangers. So anyway, I would definitely love to do more hockey content and uh, related to the law. Uh, and there's plenty of stories that come out all the time in the, with the league. And, um, you know, the legal implications don't seem to go away. So we'll have plenty more to talk about. All right. Well, uh, that that wraps it up for this episode of Conduct Detrimental. Uh, join us next time where I'm sure we're going to be covering some lawsuit or NFL related story. And the commander's sale has a has sort of a trajectory that will never end. So I imagine we'll be talking about that ownership situation over the course of the next couple of months. Uh, again, thank you, everybody, for joining us this week on Conduct Detrimental. Uh, for Jason Morin, I'm Daniel Wallach. See you next time.